Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, so today I'm happy to have a guest, and we're going to be talking about Enlightenment liberalism and uh, markets and, and, and their, their social effects and things like that. And so I have, uh, he, he uh, on Twitter, uh, went by Sorties. Um, and he is trained as a philosopher. So um, I've talked with him a little bit ahead of time and kind of had a little bit of discussion about this. And so um, I'm just going to kind of frame this a little bit and throw a question out there to him, and then um, we'll see how it goes. So welcome, Sorties, to the Trad Dads podcast. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being willing to jump on here with me. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great. So, you know, like I was saying um, – you know, what I want to talk about a little bit is kind of enlightenment liberalism and some of the claims that it makes uh, to having a certain set of benefits and then always avoiding uh, claims that there are a certain set of costs or that those costs are really bad. And so the general uh, group of people I'm talking about are people who think that um, the enlightenment was a really good idea and maybe they're Maybe they'll say something like, well, I don't really like the French Revolution. You know, that did some really bad things. But you know, as long as you as long as you stick with, you know, the British people, uh, you know, Locke and, uh, you know, guys like that, <clears throat> then you, then you're going to go in the right direction on the Enlightenment. Those guys are all good. And um, I'm just not so sure about that, but I'm also not really equipped uh, to understand the, the philosophy behind all this. And so, you know, we. Basically, as an economic fact, you know, or, or through history, you know, we get this this idea that there's some relationship between the prosperity, uh, financial wealth um, that has accumulated in society across, you know, the average person in the West, <clears throat> and so it's supposed to be some tie between that and uh, the Enlightenment and uh, all of these guys like uh, Locke and and. Uh, you know, newer figures, Hayek, Mises, uh, and different people like this. But then there's also, you know, we run into issues with this. So we could say something like, well, you know, uh, the modern surveillance state is also a product of technology. Or we might say that, you know, because people have this ability to communicate and the ability to travel very cheaply, that, um, you know, it's it has really diminished um, communities to a large extent, you know, people don't have these, these sort of uh, constraints, these ties that keep them together, or, you know, it's, it's helped to destroy the family through, you know, birth control availability. And, uh, you know, the, the social acceptance of abortion has come with all of this enlightenment philosophy and, and all of this technology. So how do we, how do we sort out this, this sort of implicit cost benefit analysis? Because, you know, whenever I say those things, I'm always told, oh, well, you know, those things are just uh, those things would have happened, you know, no matter what philosophy had given you, uh, you know, cars and interstate highways and birth control and stuff like that and, and, and cameras, um, you know, it's not the fault of liberalism. And then I keep thinking, well, OK, but you told me that's how I got all that stuff and that it's supposedly good. So how, how, do, we, how do you think we should sort through this? Yeah, well, first, I think. Um it's probably worth pointing out to somebody who says those things. And of course, I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert in the history of liberal political thought, although I've read quite a fair amount of it, um, that liberalism really isn't a monolith. Uh, it's a catch-all term that we use to describe sometimes very diverse figures. So the liberalism of a Hobbes 
for instance, is going to look very different from the liberalism of the Locke. Um, and then both of them will have a very different account of the rights of the individual um, than, say, someone I would classify as a, as a late liberal Marx. Right? So we know these things, and they're all, they all share certain commitments, I would say a kind of individualism. But they all have visions for society that look uh, pretty dissimilar. So I guess I would challenge, and this isn't exactly what we, we spoke about before we started recording, but the way you expressed the, the question this time really got me thinking. Um, I think you'd have to begin with somebody who makes those claims by asking, okay, define liberalism for me, right? What's, what's essential to it? And then explain to me how there how there's a causal connection between this result state that you find so desirable or you're content to uh, to praise and claim for your own and that philosophy that generated it. Just as a parallel, something I've said before to I think in conversations with you, um, it doesn't seem to me that materialism in the natural sciences, which has become so common among practitioners of the natural sciences has anything to do at all with the scientific method. I think many business magnates would be surprised if you told them that they are just acting out the ideas of John Locke. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's clearly not in their deliberative processes. So you might say, well, okay, maybe it's in the structure of society. Right. That, it's, uh, it's in the assumptions that are made. It's, it's, the they just don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but our society is an incredibly complex place, right? So we have, sure, we have people who do try to maximize rational self-interest, okay, like, like a Mises would counsel, um, even though he also asks us to extend that self-interest to the consideration of other people. How you even do that, the, the classic liberal way to do that is by appeal to the emotions, ultimately, that we should have this fellow feeling because we do have the fellow feeling. The liberals kind of stuck when it comes to somebody who is pathological by their reckoning, right? Or a Nietzsche who says, um, I, I just I, I just don't feel for my fellow man. <laughs> I, I just want to take his stuff. There's no <laughs> empathy in me. I yeah. am the society and everybody else is sub-political and their stuff belongs to me. And it's really just a matter what I don't do to them is only a matter of my cunning, my long-term planning. But anything I want, I take. Um so uh, to go back, I mean, there are, there are aspects of our society that are very illiberal, and I think any society has to be. I think I mentioned to you before that somebody who um, is maximizing their self-interest doesn't make the decision to join the armed forces during an active war. Right? It's right. one thing to join and expect to be uh, doing paperwork the whole time. But you join during an active war, and say you join uh, Marine infantry, right? During a war, you know you're probably going to see combat, and you know you're going to face the likelihood of death. How how does that this how does that decision fit into a liberal analysis? Let's say again, fairly late liberal, because Mises is not exactly Locke. Locke is not Hobbes, as I said. But let's take Mises. Um, how do you how do you understand that choice? somebody deciding that they're going to face death and often do die um, often enough uh, for the sake of their country. I mean, can you put a price tag on that, really? 
Right. Or I think the liberal would have to say, the consistent liberal in the Mises tradition would have to say they're kind of an irrational consumer of the goods that government provides. The rational consumer should say, hey, there are these people who are willing to die so that I'm safe. Let them do it. Yeah. Anybody but me. On, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Be, on, their, on their analysis, it would be irrational, I think. Right? Because there's no way to be compensated in kind for what you're putting in. Right. No way. Right. So, I mean, and, and that's not a small part of our society. You know, if, if you extend beyond just beyond just those people who willingly undertake those sorts of roles in our society, there are lots of people who praise them without any kind of irony and without any awareness that there's a problem with praising them on the, on the, uh, the liberal self-interested analysis of society. So right. uh, I wouldn't want to, to say that Locke, there's a straight line necessarily from Locke to Mises, because I think there are developments, just as I said there were, from Hobbes to Locke. Uh, but there, there's a kind of, indiv- even if you're any kind of individualist, I think it's hard for you to account for this phenomenon that's omnipresent in our society. These people who are willing to do it, and this whole, I mean, you could never get away with just lock, stock, and barrel criticizing the military i think as a as say a political candidate yeah you never win and that just shows how many people there are who are behind that so if you take that into consideration i I would question whether that's really a liberal feature of our society so first question i'd have is what is liberalism second question is now that we've defined it just how liberal are we in reality yeah there are many people who sing the song of liberalism when they're asked certain questions, certain questions. But people, most people are inconsistent. They're not pouring through Locke to make sure that they are, you know, observing the dogma. Right. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and instead, they're kind of inconsistent. Uh, they're inconsistent liberals. And, you know, there's some research, uh, a fairly influential book, kind of a revisionist history of this America's founding called The Myth of American Individualism. So, this, that brings me to the second thing that you brought up, which is that many liberals like to maintain the kind of middle road between uh, what came before, they might say, the Ancien Regime in France, the, uh, the pre-liberal political order. On the one hand, they don't like that, but they also don't like the extreme of the French Revolution. Yeah. Right? We don't want to go to the terror. Right. They, they seem to think that, you know, this, the, the Scottish Enlightenment is the one that was that was the good one. Yeah. And some and sometimes they'll claim they'll say, well, you know, it's the Scottish Enlightenment that was the good one. It was the glorious revolution and the principles of the glorious revolution that we just enacted in our society. And that's really what distinguished, say, the American Revolution from the French. Uh, I think there are many more things that distinguish the American from the French. But I think one of them is that there was a pretty strong sense of the common good, a fairly robust sense of the common good, even in the founding generation of this country. And I don't think that that was the common good as filtered through a liberal lens. I, these, these were men who were a hodgepodge of different things. They were rooted in English common law. They were all students of the classics. Uh, and yes, they knew the fashionable political philosophies of England at the time. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, but there were very varying degrees of agreement with that. It's not as if every founder was a Jefferson. And even Jefferson had issues with uh, just an orthodox Lockeanism. So right. that's that's saying a lot, but I, I, I those are the two big challenges I would pose to anybody. Just you know, as a trained Thomist, my first my first question is going to be, what do you mean? Always distinguish 
what kind of liberalism are we talking about? And then the second question is going to be, um, all right, you're claiming the benefits of liberalism. You're saying everything we have that's good in our society is owed to these principles. Explain to me how that works. Show me yeah. the causal connection. And, you know, it's it's I think it's really interesting what you said there about kind of the way these people live their lives and, and the society they were in that was very, um, you know, very different from ours. You know, uh, like I, I remember some conversations I've had with some guys about uh, Adam Smith, you know, and it's like he's writing these two books, you know, the theory of moral sentiments and um, <clears throat> uh, you know, the wealth of nations. And it's and it's interesting to me seeing sort of the resurgence of the theory of moral sentiments among the sort of classical liberal, you know, economics world. And they're trying to fit that into their sort of free market liberal GDP Uberalis kind of mindset. And it just doesn't fit right. And it's kind of, it's just kind of funny to me to see them kind of wrestle with this more classics, you know, duty and prudence perspective versus, you know, sort of, like rampant hedonism kind of thing that they're trying to, that they tried to pull out of the wealth of nations. But, but it's like Adam Smith is even talking, I mean, he's, you know, he's talking about international trade as this, you know, relatively small portion of most people's lives, you know, and he's talking about markets that are, that are local, you know, that are, that are very small in, in comparison with what we have today, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I can't even imagine if he, you know, that, that he would have written the same thing now, um, you know, given that he had the same prior, you know, beliefs or whatever. Um, it's just a completely different uh, world, but 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 you still get people trying to apply, you know, sort of the the basic insights of the wealth of nations to, you know, the, the sort of the bigness that we have today. Yeah, and it was a largely agrarian world. If we take, for example, somebody like Jefferson, again, somebody who's a figure who's he's deep into those early sources of political liberalism, but but his society was totally agrarian, and the the same is going to be true of Adam Smith. Right. It's mostly an agrarian society. And I don't get the sense from what I know of Smith. I mean, I've read some of the Wealth of Nations. You'll know him much better than I do. Uh, But somebody like Jefferson, he wasn't at all unhappy with a largely agrarian society. He actually had arguments in his personal writings uh, and, you know, in his letters uh, for why that's a preferable arrangement for the kind of citizen body that he wanted to create. So that's that's opposed to centralized production. You can't have both of those things, right? A largely agrarian society with with citizen farmers who are also trained in the arts of war, right? Right, the, yeah, yeah. The, the natural aristoi, the natural excellent men that uh, uh, Jefferson hoped our system would identify and elevate to higher offices, right. uh, came, came from farmsteads in his mind. He wasn't he wasn't upset about that. He didn't want to change it. And I think it was Franklin who said that it's unhealthy for a nation when it uh, imports more than it exports, which is very mm-hmm. interesting. Right. That's entirely absent, I think, from this later line. But what you've pointed out, basically, is that a lot of liberals in, in claiming all the good things that have happened in this country will project the liberalism de jure, right? the latest iteration on all of these disparate figures. So my, my point about liberalism coming in a variety of different species, sometimes making contradictory claims, uh, kind of disrupts that picture that it all comes from just one thing. And that's before we even get to the consideration of whether it's really liberalism that, say, inspired the discovery 
of locomotion or something like that, right? Or inspire, inspire the discovery of penicillin. I don't see, uh, I don't see any evidence for there being a, you know, a eureka moment. Yeah. Uh, after reading Locke or something like that. Yeah, and it's and it is interesting because I know one, you know, you get different arguments for how this, you know, supposedly how the industrial revolution started, and one of them is that you know, like people just decided that they were okay with you know, middlemen, they were going to praise middlemen now. And I, I just don't, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see how that was necessarily this big thing because I mean, certainly we had, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reading a book called the collapse of complex societies. And you look at, you know, at, at, at different periods of time in the last 4,000 years, how, you know, certain levels of technology have existed and, you know, it's just, it was just, it didn't happen to be the right time for certain things to be discovered like penicillin. Um, and it just, you know, it's, I mean, some of these things like, uh, like, and I've heard people say that, you know, the fact that we had, you know, factories become built a certain way with like kind of a central power plant, you know, that, that got drawn from, you know, from, from, uh, you know, the outside edges of the factory rather than having, you know, an, a small electrical motor based production system was just, you know, one guy had, you know, more favor with the government than the other guy did. And that's just what you got. <laughs> Yeah, if we're talking about discoveries in the last 50 years in particular, the last 70 years in the university system, uh, a lot of that was through government subsidy. So that disrupts this whole picture that ingenuity only happens where the market is allowed absolute free reign. No, a lot of the, a lot of the most significant discoveries, uh, even those affecting quality of life, even those ideas which then later get appropriated by the market, a lot of pioneering took place because of uh, government subsidization, strongly directed market. Right during part of the Cold War. Um, yeah. So uh, I want to say but something see, I, about but technology I think... generally. Uh, I think that when when people make this case, they don't they don't extend their vision for technological development far enough. Yes, our technological development's been very rapid in the last hundred years. Although you also have to be clear about what your metrics for that are. But if you look at mm-hmm. go to antiquity, right? If you look at what happened in Rome, you know, and uh, Roman Republic, and then especially in the Roman Empire, um, it's pretty marvelous the kinds of things they were able to accomplish. They they were exemplary within their own age, and many of their discoveries were the foundation for what was uh, continued during the Middle Ages, but was what was rediscovered during the Renaissance and helped to spark this this new wave of science. Right, it, that really had its origins in the rediscovery of a lot of classical literature. Um, uh, but what the Romans were able to do was pretty impressive, and and would anyone say what, that the Roman Empire was a liberal society? Right. No, not at no all. No one would dare to say that. But there was <laughs> yeah. still plenty of ingenuity. I mean, ingenuity, the likes of which, after it was lost, took several hundred years to be rediscovered. Right. And all of the later discoveries are built on the foundations that were established by, uh, you know, peoples like the Romans. So if we extend beyond, we, we tend not to give them credit in our analysis of the relationship between human nature and technological discovery, but surely they're, they should be part of it. And they, and they managed to come a long way in a short time. So it's, so it could be the case that, you know, these sort of financial incentives that we talk about in the sort of free market world, you know, maybe they matter to some extent, but they're certainly not um, either necessary, necessary or sufficient conditions for some kind of innovation or something like that. It's obviously not the case. 
and and you know my, my How thing much is money do we throw at cancer research research right yeah right exactly yeah if it were just a matter of money we'd have it right is there right. any question yeah yeah exactly you know so the, I, I guess this kind of gets to the the the, the other side of things you know that in in the back of my head so i'm always kind of the 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 narrative that that i try to think through when i'm thinking about this stuff is that you know there's there seems to just be this undergirding um i guess sort of illiberal or anti-liberal uh you know fundamentals of society and that to an extent, and I, I think you get this narrative in, uh, especially Patrick and Ian's book, uh, Why Liberalism Failed. You know, and then liberalism is is strong in the sense that it's a very powerful cancer that's eating away at the thing that's keeping it alive. Um, and it's and so it's it, as it as it erodes these institutions, and sort of causes the collapse of the society over potentially a long period of time. Um, it it's just so strange to me that it's like nobody else sees it. You know, it's like, we've got, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, massive divorce rates and then, you know, people don't even get married at all. And then we've got, um, you know, um, pedophile drag Queens and libraries. And it's like, what, well, like what is happening? You know? Um, and, and it's like, to me again, it, there's, it just, I have this sense that there's this fundamental kind of liberal, perspective that keeps eating away at these fundamental institutions that like you're saying, you know, that the the founders and stuff like this would have appealed to and would have thought were very important. Um, you know, even, you know, back then three, 400 years ago. Yeah. I don't hear anybody nowadays in the political sphere, uh, talking the way that Washington did about the importance of religion to civic morality, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, I, yeah, I, to be consistent with my method, I suppose it's, one has to be cautious about laying social phenomenon at the feet of any system of thought, right? Uh, so it, it cuts both ways. On the one hand, I'd want to say, well, it's it's not easy and clear to me how you're going to praise this system of thought for what you're claiming it's accomplished. But on the other hand, you know, it is difficult to blame it directly, except for where its principles explicitly warrant certain behaviors or fail to block it, right? Sure. Um, yeah, so you you brought up a lot. I mean, there's a from from divorce to the you know the the library drag queens. Uh, what I want to say just very quickly though is that I don't, and I don't want to straw man the apologists for liberalism because here's something they say that I think just is true: where there's competition, there's likely to be more ingenuity. I think that is true. I just think mm-hmm. that the danger with especially this later state, you know. Austrian economic school is to focus only on or primarily on economic incentives and to discount other kinds of incentives that have mattered in some cases a lot more to some people like honors. Right. Right. So there are all sorts of different ways to incentivize ingenuity. Um, And one of them is just uh, monetary. But there are many others. And I know that I know that a number of them do acknowledge that at least. But it seems like their focal examples of incentive almost always come come back around to something tradable but it's not clear what the exchange value of honor exactly is just a well steep. yeah i mean i think part of that you can blame on the germans for you know professionalizing academia and, and forcing everybody into these very narrow um you know fields uh, i mean like you know for me it's yeah. you know I'm, I'm an economist so you know it's this the only thing i can think about right is, is sort of 
you know, utility maximization and trade-offs and, and, you know, it's, this is the, that's the toolkit I have. So. Although we're know. living through an age, as you've told me that, that, um, we're, we're trying to do more interdisciplinary research and trying to mm-hmm. connect principles. So I think, I think that's a good trend. Uh, it has to be done yeah. right, but I think that that at least is motivated by some good concerns. Uh, and I want to make a further claim about, about competition. I do think that markets on a certain scale do encourage competition. So even those financial rewards for a significant number of people do encourage ingenuity. So they right. encourage competition. Competition encourages ingenuity. Not unconditionally. I th- is there a, a time when competition can become toxic to ingenuity? Sure, I think so. Uh, if everybody's focused only on winning and not on doing a good job, I think we all, we've experienced that in our own lives where we've seen people do a poor, poorer work than they otherwise would. So some yeah. of this boils down to um, sussing out the, the psychology very carefully. Uh, but I think those general claims do hold. So I'll give that I'll give that to the apologists for liberalism. And I don't want to say that markets are altogether bad because I'm not I know you're not uh, some kind of market abolitionist. It's just a question of where markets properly fit in human life. But yeah, yeah, yeah you know, it was go ahead. It, it was funny when you were mentioning you know, the, the, the founders and Jefferson and all of this. And I just kept thinking of Tucker Carlson, you know, and, and it's like, he's, you know, he's flat out said, he's like, I'm not a populist. He's like, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm an elitist, but you know, he's like, when something goes wrong with the elites, you know, you, you get populism. And, and so he, he strikes me as, you know, somebody who seems very, like if I were to go back and, you know, shake hands with Washington, I feel like he would be a lot like Tucker, you know, in the sense that, um, you know, and, and Tucker has said, like you're just saying, you know, a second ago there, you know, we don't, you know, we're human beings. We're not here to serve markets as some weird, you know, anthropomorphized God. You know, they're just a tool for us to use. And I mean, you would not, you would not believe how incensed that makes, you know, people in my profession um, when you say that, you know, well, markets are just a tool. I mean, they just absolutely, their heads explode. Um, but I, Again, I, I can't I can't even imagine someone two or three hundred years ago thinking, gosh, you know, well, we just have to do this because that's what competition dictates or, you know, well, we can't we can't possibly regulate this or we can't possibly tax that. And it's like, my goodness, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're I, so I off get, the rails. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jefferson or Washington, I don't think he said in his uh, what was it, his um, uh, declaration or, or uh, original edict that he wrote about thanksgiving i don't think he said we ought to thank uh gdp or market efficiency for all the good gifts <laughs> it's given us right? But right right if you haven't read that it's a wonderful wonderful text is his um his uh i guess his establishing the national feast which belongs to him i'll mention side note because the american executive is so heavily modeled on the roman executive and that was one of the things that at least in Caesar's uh-huh. case, belonged to him because he was Pontifex. But anyway, right, uh, right. And consul. So a little, a little. I mean, th- that illustrates this whole set of values that were operative in the founders that are just very, very different from what liberalism's like to claim. Liberalists, liberal apologists now like to claim with their, uh, uh, with their ideas. But so just coming to the, coming back to. Uh, what you were saying about divorce and other social ills. Um, I mean, I think you can say that broadly, uh, divorce comes from 
the, the kind of rampant divorce we're seeing now definitely is motivated by a kind of individualism. And that is something shared by, I think, Locke and Hobbes. Even if Hobbes, for instance, uh, will try to establish a, a sovereign power that trumps all individuals, it's really that he he wanted uh, a sovereign who was, who was the perfect and complete enlightenment individual. Right. Right. Um, uh, but so they both they both have a, a, a shared conception of what human flourishing and human happiness means. Uh, and and I think that it's in those their answers to those kinds of questions where you can work out some general similarities between people like Mises and Locke and and Hobbes. Um, and I think that it's in their answers to those questions. What what really is a fulfilled human being? Does he really need anybody else strictly? If it suppose, but, mm-hmm. I mean, suppose you add to the mix. I mean, this isn't something that Locke and Hobbes foresaw, right? But suppose you know you have automated production. Suppose some of the predictions that are being made now about uh, increased automation. I think some of those are are way overblown, just to to generate some interest in various cottage industries. But um, but suppose that that the claims about automation. Uh, come to pass. I mean, that that's something they couldn't have foreseen. So suppose you have an individual right. who's who's got all of his need needs met by advanced technology. What does he really not need other people for? You yeah. know, sentiment sentiment might require that he look for them. I get, but that's the weakest of all conceivable reasons. Because what do you say to the man who lacks that sentiment? Um, well, and so it, 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 I think you know, for, for me to try to, I guess I'm trying to uh, put my own you know, the thought process on all of this. And so it, it seems like, you know, the, 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 the thing that all of these sort of revolutionary ideologies have in common is this sort of individualistic kind of thing, or, or, and, and at the very least, maybe this idea that, you know, there's some, you know, the, like you, you said, you know, the, the perfect, the perfect liberal individual man, you know what I mean? It's, it, it kind of reminds me of like, the, you know, the new socialist man kind of thing, like, you know, like the sort of the French utopians. I mean, yeah, they're different. You know, these these concepts are different, but they all kind of strike me as as different versions of souls. Um, uh, you know, unconstrained vision sort of thing. And mm-hmm. and and you know, when you talk about somebody who's more of a reactionary or or something like that, you know, what they're going to have in, in in common, at least in souls framework, is a is a is a hard commitment to, you know, the constrained vision. Yeah, to a bounded individual who who's um defined and ultimately fulfilled by the commitments that he makes that doesn't seek a, a liberty that's ultimately opposed to any kind of restriction on his willpower right right um uh the only res- the strong restrictions that some of these liberals make and again your mileage varies with different individual with different liberal thinkers but the most of the restrictions they they place on the individual's will are are statements they they make about um or they're just from generalizations about what humans do tend to feel, and they're usually very society-specific, right? Uh, so an influential Scottish Enlightenment figure like Hume is going to make his entire moral system rest on just sentiment. And right. most of what he does is just describe the sentiment of English people he knows and presume that the whole, the whole apparatus of English government and society in his day is held together just by the way people feel. Whether that's an adequate description, I mean, I, I, I sincerely, I mean, I know that's not true. 
right? Mm-hmm. This is this is Hume's description of what's going on. But I think it maybe and maybe it's not even fully true of Hume. I don't think anybody can live purely by sentiment as a matter of fundamental commitment. But um, but this is the tendency of, of liberal thought to um, uh, to boil down associations between men as as associations either of kind of sympathy, empathy, or utility, right? Rather rather than um, friendship as as conceived by the ancients and as by um, uh, illiberal thinkers down through the ages, right? That friendship which seeks fulfillment in ultimately non-economic things, not in just individual advantage but in seeking a good that's imminently shareable with one another so um i think that it's it's failing to have that vision of these shared goods of 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 things like the value of virtue as preeminent uh, there's this mm. there's this passage in in Locke in his uh i think it's in the second treatise where he says you know disputes about the ultimate good are he compares them to disputes about you know uh preference with different kinds of fruit or something like that right uh he says that it, it, it's a meaningless question and i think that i think that if you're going to find a common thread in liberalism that i think generates a lot of the problems like divorce down the line like a denial of nature which produces um you know some of the other stuff you, you mentioned right um uh i think the common theme is is uh Failing to see the universe as, as ultimately having a purpose, failing to see humans as having a purpose, specifically their will, mm-hmm. that the human will is good for something and should be used a certain way and not other ways, and that true freedom consists in the right use of the will. I think those are things, those are all claims about which any liberal gets squeamish. Although, again, you know, maybe maybe you'll find somebody who just calls themselves themselves a liberal and is, and is fine with the classical answers to those um yeah uh, which gets back to your definite defining things and yeah all that. but i do think that for those for those great figures in, in the history of political theory uh a caution about those wanting to create room for individuals to come up with their own answers to questions about ultimate fulfillment i think that's the common thread mm. so a, a values pluralism in the end game is i think where uh where liberals kind of come together of various stripes Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it just sort of smacks of a kind of relativism, uh, at least oh, yeah. from, from my point of view. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I mean, they tend to, they tend to sneak in hard values through the back door. Right. right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, and that's, and really, really uh, the efficiency stuff is just bringing in a false idol. Yes. You know, yep. A replacement idol for the lack of strong moral convictions. Oh yeah. I've been saying that all, I mean, for a few years now that it's like, that supposedly, you know, every time someone tells me, oh, well, that's not, you know, that 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 breaks breaks an economic law, and it's like, no, it's it's just the the background assumptions that you want me to make, I'm not making, <laughs> and you're you're angry with me about it. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Right. Yeah. So I, well, I I appreciate it, Sorties, and I I think I think this has been a good conversation, and so um, if you have anything else you'd like to wrap up with, um, you know, I'd be would love to hear it. But other than that, I, I think uh, this has been great. And I, I appreciate your time. Yeah. I've been glad to be on here and to talk with you about these things. As I said, just a final disclaimer, I guess um, I'm not an expert on the history of the industrial revolution or, sure. uh, and I'm not, and I, and I lack the uh, economic knowledge of our esteemed host, but um, 
but I, I do know some of these figures pretty well. And uh, one thing I'll mention uh, very quickly, uh, even, even the defenders of liberalism, of different kinds of liberalism, or even people who belong to the Enlightenment tradition broadly, uh, attest to the different elements, the fractures within it. And there are disputes about who's, liberal, who's liberalism, who's Enlightenment. Um, and I'll, the book that I would mention, or at least the idea, that I'd like to mention that would illustrate this well is um, uh, the three waves of modernity thesis uh, by uh, Leo Strauss. Okay, so broadly a man of enlightenment sympathies. He was a scholar of medieval thought as well. I think he started with the uh, medieval Arabic philosophers. He started with political philosophy, people like Al-Farabi. He studied Maimonides. uh, but he, he was interested in contemporary politics, right? And he's had a, a lot of influence in certain places in academia. His students can be found in the political science department of, of Notre Dame, for instance, and they're very influential there. Um, mm. uh, but, but all over the place, all over the place, not just there. Uh, uh, but anyway, he, he distinguishes different uh, movements within modernity, right? So there's, uh, for him, you have the liberal, a kind of early liberalism, a kind of middle liberalism and a late liberalism. And he doesn't see them as necessarily flowing from one or, well, he, he does actually. So he sees, he sees there being a kind of continuity from one Mm -hmm. to the next, to the next stage so that you can draw a kind of straight line from, um, the liberalism of a lock to the revolutionary liberalism of, let's say, (laughs) the, the ellipsis, the continued, right? The the present day kinds of revolutionary liberalism that we find, right? Uh, mm. uh, and and plenty of people, plenty of his students attack this thesis, right? And they want to say, well, one doesn't follow strictly from the other. He's right. Many of them at least recognize that there are importantly different stages. Um, mm-hmm. So so there's a fairly lively debate even among the apologists for liberalism. And then of course the latest revolutionaries. I mean. How many, how many contemporary self-described liberals really even like talking seriously about the founding fathers, or how many of them just get overwhelmed by their antipathy toward, yeah. or toward slavery to really even be able to control their feelings toward them to appreciate the good things they did and thought and said, right? Yeah, so that's it's, a it's like historical rupture there. Yeah, it's like you know, yesterday's yesterday's revolutionaries are today's Girondin, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, beware, beware the guillotine will come for you too. So, <laughs> yeah, right. So these are just further illustrations, I guess, for the audience of, uh, some of the rifts within liberalism. So one mm-hmm. has to, I mean, you know, you can get those quick and easy books in, you know, books of, uh, the history of thought in bookstores where people make these sweeping claims of, you know, oh, everything we have today or politicians will do this. Everything we have today, we owe to the markets or we know we owe to mm-hmm. uh, liberal political philosophy. But, uh, you know, there's, Detailed work is necessary for dealing with these questions, and I think that it's going to be hard to assign the good things that have uh, come to exist in this country to just a single ideological component. In fact, I think, thankfully, most of what's good comes from, uh, I would say, less a matter of uh, enlightenment programming and more a matter of just the needs of everyday human life. Right. coordinating over time and creating good institutions just as a matter of necessity that happens a fair amount too so at any rate 
Yeah, that's my no, that's final great. Deal. I'm yeah. glad to be on here. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Sorties, and, and I'll, I'll be sure to have you back soon. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.